American Pacific Fleet, backed by powerful British units, is taking fearful toll of enemy aircraft. Japan's answer is the use of a new weapon, kamikaze. Suicide pilots who dive squarely into Allied ships to sink them. Japan's growing desperation is reflected in this fanatical sacrifice of pilots and aircraft in a crazy attempt to hold the Allies off. The Japanese, long trained to blind obedience and worship of the Emperor, teach their children that ceremonial suicide is one of the greatest acts of which man is capable. Kamikaze pilots are men trained for death. Nearly all the suicide pilots are between 16 and 20 years old. Celebrations are held to honor them when their training is finished. Prayers are said, and they need them, for they're already as good as dead. The prettiest geisha girls entertain them. Their pictures appear in Japanese newspapers as national heroes. Garbed in ceremonial robes, their heads are shaved except for a small patch of hair. During their last few days of life, they walk solemnly through the streets. They're ready for their mission of death. This is their big day. To cries of Banzai, they prepare for their last flight, which may destroy an allied ship. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as you can tell from that newsreel out of which I had to edit the racial slurs, we are talking about Kamikaze by Beatrice Garland today. I am your host, Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. If you are enjoying this episode, I'm really, really pleased. Well, if you do, have a look on Amazon for the full context series. We've got AQA Poetry, Power and Conflict, which is going to be remarkably similar to this episode because I'm using it as a little bit of a teaser, a tasty teaser for my book. Check on YouTube, Straight Talking English. You can see my face, you can see me talking about poems and all matter of business. If you like what I'm doing, Patreon slash Straight Talking English. You can donate for as little as a pound a month. Top tier subscribers get to commission me to do an episode and an essay on pretty much any literary topic you like, which you've got to admit that's a pretty good deal i do even occasionally sometimes know what i'm talking about (laughs) bit of a warning on this one as you can kind of guess uh because we are talking about kamikaze there is going to be a lot of mentions of suicide suicidal ideation anything involving the ending of one's life for what one perceives as a higher cause if that is something that is going to ruin your day please switch off now we'll be back next week it's totally chill if you are still with me cool we're going to talk about kamikaze so narrative of our poem is pretty straightforward bro is pilot he's up there for some reason he turns back he goes home he wonders what is the better way to die after he is shunned by his community problem is i've been re-watching the american office uh this is day 70 of my lockdown and there's an episode where dwight decides to shun andy and starts every sentence with shunned uh and it's not like that at all though unfortunately the little devil on my shoulder is what i've put in here um he has a really terrible life for some reason he decides to turn back rather than completing suicide in order to destroy an american aircraft the narrator i think we're assuming is the guy's daughter and she's telling the story to a younger person i like the i like the idea of um mum telling the little kids this story about their like family shame 
in actual conversations with the poet, which I haven't had, I would love to. If you're listening, give me a call. I'm at home. I'm bored. Uh, actual proper teachers have got in contact with her, and she has said that one of the main messages of this poem is about trauma and collective trauma. How we as a society process trauma. You can argue that in some ways, in some communities, we have not all fully processed the trauma of the Holocaust. I know that I'm under the impression from speaking to Jewish friends that that is the case within the Jewish community. And right now, we are all in a time of slightly collective trauma since our lives have all gone on hold. But imagine that, except it's your whole country you've been built up to be like we're the best it's all all good and then like bang you was lied to we've we've lost everything is terrible the writer does not have any links to japan as far as i know this is an invented character so rather than try and probe into the ins and outs of uh writing from the perspective of a different culture which i (laughs) i would be hesitant to do we're going to talk about this as if it was real as if if this was a genuine experience because there were a lot of young men who did have this experience and fortunately they felt like they wanted to talk about it in interviews this is actually kind of strange and um, a lot of the interviews i was reading come from this book by theodore and hiroko cook and it's called japan at war and oral history what comes out over and over again is that we don't talk about it like people have come back from the war and be like no not talking about it never community's reaction at the end of the poem of just like no done yeah that actually seems relatively accurate based on what these researchers discovered so all right what do we know about our pilot assuming our pilot is mr average right like in no way like spectacularly old or spectacularly young he's probably going to be the age of year 12 which is which is horrible like some of the youngest were 15 you did get ones as old as their 30s but if someone was in that situation to be a pilot they would probably be the age of year 12 so imagine there's a year 12 at school what would it have been like how would they have gone on this journey a gentleman called kozu nauji who was a survivor of the kamikaze campaigns believed that he would be safe from having to serve in the war there wasn't a policy of exemption if you're a university student so this guy was in year eight and he thought he would have been fine he said at the time of pearl harbor which was the japanese bombing of the u.s military base pearl harbor that terrible terrible movie with ben affleck in it oh god and it led to the u.s declaring a war on japan kozu nauji said i was only nearing the end of my second year at high school the war was being fought by adults students were still deferred from the draft if everything had gone normally i wouldn't have graduated from university until march 46 I was sure I was absolutely safe and I acted that way. But while someone like that would be at school chilling, the school would not be our regular school. So you've got young people involved in this really, really militaristic curriculum, which didn't seem to make sense otherwise. If we're looking at back at Cook's book, Japan at War, 
He summarised it as the schools could best be characterised as tools of the state. Even the name of primary schools was changed to Kokumingako, or National People's Schools, reflecting their mission of training loyal subjects for the Japanese Empire. Graduates of the Kokumingako were obligated to attend Sainangako, schools which emphasised the kinds of vocational skills that would serve the country in its effort to marshal major militaristic expansion. So, stuff like metalworking, because we're going to need factories, carpentry, because we're going to be building, stuff like that. Even textbooks used during this wartime period to reinforce the ultra-nationalistic objectives of the state. One set of texts called the Kokutai no Hongi, Cardinal Principles of the National Entity, served the government's purpose to control people's thinking and their access to a full range of historical information. All of these people were growing up full of propaganda at their schools. We're more familiar with the Nazi scenarios of, you know, like you join the um, League of German Maidens and you all go to Hitler Youth Camp or whatever. Think really similar. But we also have this worship of the emperor and i'm saying not worship is a metaphorical thing i'm saying legally at that point the emperor was considered to be a god it was actually a bit of a controversy when um a more recent emperor of japan officially declared himself to be a human mortal to a certain extent this is kind of an invented tradition because 19th century the monarchy comes back they're trying to push that there's something special to keep a hold on their powers so they build up this like cult of personality. Again, I'm not saying like every Japanese person was like, I worship the emperor. Like, no, no, no. As with every nation, full spectrum of opinion. But that was the official line that was pushed. Another gentleman called Sato Hideo was in primary school during the Second World War. And he said throughout the war years, the emperor remained special. Our image of the emperor never flickered. I was repelled by the army which I saw with my own eyes, but I never extended those thoughts to the great field marshal emperor who existed in the inner recesses of that army. Whenever I saw a picture of the emperor riding his white horse, I gushed. How wonderful! We weren't even allowed to step on a newspaper that bore the emperor's image. We couldn't wrap our lunch in such a paper because juice might leak on the emperor's face. So, war is going on as it does second world war i mean it's fairly 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 well known um japan is dramatically losing this war the japanese military are very very aware of this like counting less planes and such like and they don't know what to do it's a small small place like you can't just magically get more resources and magically get more people and yeah they are conquering other areas notably singapore and northern China but it's not like the Brits or the Americans where we have these greater resources either from empire or the size of the country to call on summer of 1944 they commanders the commanders are thinking of a new strategy and okay okay logistically the strategy makes sense we train a po- we train a pilot to crash his plane or if you've got someone in a navy crash their boat into an aircraft carrier that one pilot is one dude he it costs in terms of resources one guy one plane and in theory you could destroy an entire battleship 
So ignoring like the human cost or morality or anything, from logistics and resources, strategy, yeah, solid, all right. Kamikaze campaigns weren't actually that successful. Uh, the hit rate, I'll put that in quote marks in my books, that's why I've got that sounds awful, of less than 20%. October 1944, um, through to the end of the war, Japan flew two and a half thousand kamikaze missions and they only sank about 45 vessels. These are mostly destroyers, uh, but they damaged things like aircraft carriers, battleships. They damaged like the big, the big guns, the big numbers, but the ones they destroyed are a bit smaller. By the time the war finished, Japan had more than 9,000 aircraft available for kamikaze attacks. 5,000 were ready to go. About six and a half thousand men died, including those who died during training. Um, that's according to the Tokutai Com Commemoration Peace Memorial Association. If you wonder why I'm flubbing my words, um, so I speak three languages. I speak Mandarin, Chinese, um, German and English. And because switching between those languages is actually really difficult for my stupid brain. I don't speak Japanese, but I can pronounce things relatively well. So my, my attempt for this to be like the only episode I don't flub non-English words has now made me flub my English words. So I can never actually win. So you've got all these young men and an order comes down directly from the emperor saying... I'm not going to tell you to do this, but I want you to volunteer and you'll be awesome if you do volunteer. And this is like the, the god who like all your schooling, everything is studying this dude and he says I want you to volunteer. Paper's going to be volunteering. I mean, as I mentioned, year 12. I wouldn't trust my year 12 to make any kind of decision. One of them snapchatted a member of my class when I was teaching year 12 saying he was stuck in a lift and could I help him? And I, I just, year 12 man, like they're so young. I don't know if you're listening to this and you're younger than year 12. When you get to my advanced age of 33, they look like little kids. Like, if we think about, like, back to school and stuff, one of the things teachers are supposed to do is share these fundamental British values quote unquote these things that make us brits brits which i think they actually come up in the citizenship test support your family prevent extremism respect the rule of law tolerance and i can't remember there might be a fifth one i can't remember but the one the set of like fundamental Japanese values of 1945 would be summarised as the Bushido code. This is not like an actual code that you sign up to, like a highway code. It's like a set of values which are promoted by the ruling class as being good. It comes from this mythologising of the samurai. Back in the day, there was a Japanese warrior class called the samurai. We know, we've seen the armour and because we've got this restoration of the monarchy they're keen to bring back all this traditional stuff one of it is the bushido lots of people on the internet are like re-promoting this generally the kind of guys who have neck beards and collect katanas are promoting this on the internet but 
a nice like summary we can think of it this way the first duty of a samurai was to his lord japan had a feudal system in which a lord expected obedience from his vassals who in turn received economic and military protection from the lord if a lord couldn't count on absolute loyalty from his vassals the entire system would have collapsed this sense of loyalty and honor was often carried to extremes by the japanese who would fight to the death in a hopeless battle to protect their master's castle or commit suicide if they felt they had disgraced their lord. It's just horrible if we think about it that way. Let's, let's hear from another Japanese person. Let's hear from Yakuta Yutaka. He was a pilot about the same age as our potential kamikaze pilot. And his commander said to him, Your motherland faces immediate peril. Consider how much your motherland needs you. Now, a weapon which will destroy the enemy has been born. If there, if there be any among you who burn with a passion to die gloriously for the sake of their country, let them step forward. Do not think of returning alive. These arms have not been created in order that you may return alive. Nutaka says, When I was selected, I felt a slight sense of sadness. My life now had no more than a year to go, but I was already in training. I wasn't thinking of surviving the war. Rather than getting shot down by some plane, better to die grandly, go out in glory. We trained desperately. You couldn't complain of pain or anything. You had to push on. If I don't hit the target, if I have to self-detonate, I'll die without doing what I must. It was agony for everybody. Once you become a member of an attack force, you become deathly serious. Your eyes become set, focused. If you'd have two lives, it wouldn't have mattered but you were giving up your only life. Life is so precious. Your life is dedicated to self-sacrifice, committed to smashing into the enemy. That's why we were trained like that. We practiced that hard because we valued our lives so highly. The morning of our departure from Hikari base, we said farewell to life. We wore our dress uniforms. They gave us each a short sword and a headband marked with the words, given seven lives, I'll serve my nation with each of them. That could be the bit about in the cockpit, right? The ancient incantations and his father's sword. Though he wouldn't actually have taken his father's sword. It's a lovely image, but they don't let you have the big pointy ones in the airplane. There's an old expression. Bushido is a search for a place to die. Well, that was our fervent desire. Our long-cherished dream. A place to die for my country. I was happy to have been born a man. A man of Japan. I don't care if that makes me sound egotistical, but that's how I felt. The country was in my hands. So, yeah, we've got this typical story. Pilot's on his way. <laughs> That's literally like the first... The, the first verse has just taken me, like... Oh, my God. How long has it been? 18 minutes. 18 minutes and we're still just discussing the first verse. I promise I'll hurry up. I promise. Um, He turns back. Our pilot does. Deliberately, we assume. Some pilots did turn back not really form up that um reason as far as i can tell of the men who were counted as kamikaze survivors most of the ones that i've read about were supposed to go but then japan surrendered it was actually a bit of a dig to try and find someone who did turn back one of the ones was ryuji nagatsuka and i think our poet read Ryuji Nagatsuka's book. He wrote um, an autobiography called I Was a Kamikaze, which came out in the 70s. And some of the bits that was in the poem <laughs> are in this book. 
So, I was a kamikaze. Seriously, go for it. It's basically the whole thing. And Ryuji Nagatsuka says, We continued flying in tight formation. Visibility is very poor. I kept my eyes glued to the flight leader's plane. The rising sun painted on his fuselage in the form of a red circle is veiled now and then by a light cloud, which also hides the other planes from me. With their green and white patches, these fighters have a somewhat sorrowful air. In the sunshine, they might be compared to the swift little birds of Elysium. He's talking about ancient Greek mythology. So our narrator at this bit, whose account I'm reading, he is a literature student who was at university. So he starts chatting quite a lot about Greek mythology. But at this moment, in their camouflage, they make me think of the monstrous birds of hell. In spite of their speed, they look as, th as if they are hanging motionless in the sky. A curious image comes to mind. A dead samurai, seen in a film when I was a child. Exposed to the glacial wind on the foggy and deserted banks of the River Styx. Alright. Quick quiz, we know about river sticks because Eden Rock. He had done his best to build a pile of stones, but the invisible demons of hell there downed his can. A can of stones from this samurai movie that the narrator mentions, she's read his book, before it could reach the required height. According to Buddhist legends, a dead man must c construct a can of stones to gain the eternal repose of his soul. A virtuous soul will do it without difficulty. A man who has lived in vice will never succeed, for the demons will never let him. The sea below me is rough and grey. The high white waves are like fabulous beasts showing their teeth. But at least this is a manifestation of nature, of life. When I consider that soon I will have no contact with these things, I find the angry swell and the foam pleasing to my eye. Like noticing the fish... I feel a profound attachment to life surging up anew within me, lacerating my heart as death approaches me. I long to cry out, why me? Why must I die when my fellow students are allowed to live and will be able to continue their studies? There is no answer, no solution. Man is too weak to accept an accomplished fact without regret. Suddenly, the squadron leader points to the rear. My god, there must be American planes pursuing us. I turn round, nothing. Nothing but thin cloud. I can't understand the leader's signal. A few seconds later, he swings his plane round to the left. What is he turning back? At this moment, I see the second and third plane swinging round obediently. My left foot presses the rubber pedal and my hand automatically tips the stick to change course. If we carry on flying through this cotton wall, it will only mean throwing our lives away for nothing. Our flight leader must have reasoned it all out. I choke my, back my tears. No doubt my comrades are in the same state. When he gets back, his commander goes, Why did you turn back? Don't you realise what punishments and humiliations are waiting for you at the base? The ground crews, even the schoolboys, will look at you coldly. Like... <laughs> To be fair, I would say the end of this book, um, the end of the guy's autobiography was genuinely very, very upsetting. So he actually manages to go home, except he's in Hiroshima when the A-bomb drops and it just gets worse. But he did turn back. He didn't do it like as a moral thing. It was a pragmatic thing and he followed his leader. Another guy, Tatsuzo Nishimura, came back home. He avoided death because of the war ending. And he was not shunned by his family. There was no, like, my mother never spoke again in his presence. 
what awaited Nishimura were the faces of his parents, older brother and younger sister. He felt neither regret nor happiness, but rather thought, if only we'd have been able to fight, maybe we'd have won. And his family were happy to have him return safe. He ended up becoming a carpenter. He married and had two children. And he said if we had a chance to complete our mission, this day would have never come. He's happy. His greatest joy, he said in this interview, is watching over his four grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. It's not this compulsory, like, this is what would have happened. This is one of the dangers I feel about teaching this poem, is it tends to fall into, like, these grand sweeping statements, like, this is what Japanese people do. And, like, I would say the only thing that Japanese people would all do is probably show their Japanese passport with the boulder. I can't really think of much else. I just want to make it clear, like, each of these stories is individual. Garland is presenting one that that links into this collective trauma, the sadness, the guilt, isn't necessarily entirely representative. The Cairn thing comes from this autobiography and this samurai legend. The fishy thing, the dark prince of the sea, that big fish paragraph, I think it's the little silver aeroplanes attacking the big aircraft carrier, and I think it comes from that autobiography where he has this recollection of nature and maybe she was eating some fish and chips or something when she wrote the poem and it all just came together. I will give you a sad one though. I will give you someone who felt guilt. The closest I could get to a real life, someone feeling that shame and guilt. This gentleman at the time of his war service was 22. His name is Fujio Hayashi. He was one of the administrators he was responsible for allocating who would be involved in a particular scheme. It's a little bit different to Kamikaze. Um, it was called Okar. You put a pilot on a glider, give him a bomb, push him forward. He felt duped. He thought his job was a joke. Now, as a very elderly man, he says he's tormented with guilt for having sent dozens of young men to the deaths with my pencil, as he put it, referring to how he had written the names for Okar assignments each day. To squelch, squelch any suspicion of favouritism, he sent his favourite pilots first. After the war, Mr. Hiyashi joined the military and attended memorials for the dead pilots. He consoled families and told everyone how gentle the men had been. They'd smiled right up to their deaths, he says, because they did not want anyone to mourn or worry. And he says every day, 365 days a year, I remember those who died. Tears start coming. I have to run to the bathroom and weep. While I'm there weeping, I feel they're vibrantly alive within my heart, just the way they were long ago. He hardly talked about his kamikaze days to his children. They remembered him as a dad who loved classical music, music took them to amusement parks and loved cats so much he adopted strays. I think of the many men I killed with my pencil, and I apologise for having killed them in vain. He often said he wanted his ashes to be scattered into the sea near the southern islands of Okinawa, where his men had died. Until then, he said, his war would never be over. He... This is the end. The, the ambiguity at the end of the poem, which had been the better way to die. The interpretation a lot of people get is that the guy decides independently to complete suicide, even though after he's come home... I don't think he does. I think he carries on living, but in the same 
sort of way as the last gentleman I mentioned, Mr. Hiyashi. It's a weird one. I haven't even talked about the word kamikaze. It means divine wind. It, it's a reference to when a storm stopped invaders. Um, yeah, and that's where it comes from. It's also one where the word, like poppies, conveys its own emotional baggage so without even reading the poem we get our own ideas just from the title and there you go thank you for coming to my ted talk about why kamikaze is what it is character's kind of typical she's not japanese it's all about collective trauma lots of people are sad it all comes from this dude's autobiography read it it's really sad yeah lots of things about that particular society were kind of messed up during the war as were most people's in summary war is bad thank you very much for listening str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com youtube slash straight talking english if you want to see some videos also based on these poems patreon slash straight talking english if little as a quid a month you can support what i do top tier subscribers you can commission me to do something hopefully write a literature essay and not a little tap dance amazon the full context if you've enjoyed this episode you may well enjoy the entire book it's like this but it's a book and i will see you next week for more poetry have a lovely lovely week